Good morning, Rock Hills. Glad you're here. My name's Stephen. I'm part of the teaching team. I've been given a special challenge this morning because we're having our speaker's microphone repaired, and I'm a hand talker. So everybody in the front row, be ready with because I'm a little afraid I'm going to say, and then, <laughs> and the microphone is going to fly. If you've heard me speak before, you know that I'm a really big fan of the Chronicles of Narnia. These are books by the Christian author C.S. Lewis, written in the 1950s, mostly to children, and that's about right for me. read them when I was a kid, and I also read them about every five years, because I believe they're very insightful. They are the story of a magical land called Narnia that has humans, but also has some animals that talk and some animals that don't. And the ruler of that land is called Aslan. He's a lion, clearly is a figure representing Jesus Christ, because He gives his life for a traitor. He is executed and resurrects. We can clearly see Christ in him. But the book I wanted to mention just briefly this morning is one called The Magician's Nephew. And in this book, it's about how Aslan created Narnia and the beasts and gave them the power to speak. And it parallels Genesis. And in this book, he calls a human man from London in the late 1800s, his name is Frank, to be the first king of Narnia. And Frank says, you know, I just do not feel that I'm qualified to be king because I'm not educated. So Aslan, the lion, the mighty lion, the Christ figure is going over with him. What are the qualities of a king? He asks him if he'll be fair with the different kinds of animals. But one of the things he says is, and if enemies came against the land and enemies will arise, will you be the first in the charge and the last in retreat. Will you be the first in the charge and the last in retreat? And remember, Aslan is a king. He is not a president. He has the right to send his subjects to fight the enemy to their death before he is touched. But what Aslan says is that a good king puts himself in between the enemy and his people. That is what a good king does. That made a big impression on me when I was younger. It still makes an impression today. We're doing a series leading up to Easter called Who is Jesus? And I think Jesus is exactly this king who puts himself between the enemy, the adversary, and his people who are us. Now, today's sermon is on the topic of the temptation of Jesus. Uh, Sam read that for us. Thank you, Sam. And... I've known I was going to be speaking on this topic for quite a while, and so I'd been planning out in my head what I was going to do. And my wife, Laura, kind of independently started listening to this preacher who was giving sermons on the book of Matthew and said, man, he is so good. And then he gave one on the temptation of Jesus. And she said, I know you're preaching on that. You should listen. And my, you know, loving attitude was, sweetheart, I have my opening joke set. Okay, don't need any help. And I listened, and it was phenomenal. She was right, as is. 100% of the time, 100% officially, 100%. She was right. It was phenomenal, and it really changed the way I look at this scripture. So I'm going to be borrowing heavily. This guy is called Tim Mackey. Tim Mackey, he's a Bible professor. When we post this sermon on the website, rockhills.com, we will post a link to that sermon because I can't cover everything that he does, but it's really fantastic. But I'm borrowing heavily from him, at least on part of it. A big thing that changed how I look at this passage was his focus on the word temptation. 
was his focus on the word temptation. So let's read the scripture. The first one says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit, that's the Spirit of God, that's the Spirit of God, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now I'm going to ask a bit of forgiveness, that I'm going to make a little bit of a diversion here and talk about this word tempt in the original language. But I do want to apologize a little bit, and I feel like I have to, because if you know me, I apologize all the time anyway. But also, because I grew up in a church that was connected to a seminary, and a lot of people that would come and speak would constantly talk about, well, you can't understand this except for in the Greek. You can't understand this except for in the Greek. And I always felt like, I'm not going to learn Greek. How do I understand the Bible for me, right? So I am not talking about correcting anything. I'm talking about giving a little bit deeper understanding of the passage. I want to give an example because we know occasionally it's helpful to realize when you're translating something that not all words translate directly. I think we have quite a few Spanish speakers in our community. You probably know some words that that uh, don't translate directly between Spanish and English. Being ever so practical and living in Texas, I didn't take Spanish in school. I took German. So I'm going to use an example from a language I know from German about how it's not always easy to translate a word directly. They have a word in German called Schweigen, a nice, beautiful-sounding language. Schweigen! Um, called Schweigen. As a noun, that das there just means the, the. It means silence, the silence. But they also have a verb, an active verb, Schweigen. And it means, well, let's see what the dictionary says it means, because I looked it up. They translate it as say nothing, keep quiet. Yes, that's it. But schweigen is a single word that means to purposely, purposely not say anything. And somehow keep quiet doesn't make sense. If I was translating, if there was a person speaking German to you and I was translating and they said somebody schweigen, I would say mm, he didn't respond, right? That's, that's correct. But if you were to write down my translation and someone else were to read it, they might think, well, did he not respond because he didn't understand the question? Did he not respond because he didn't realize the question was posed to him? Or did he not respond because he chose not to? I mean, you wouldn't know. Like you do, Schweigen is as active of a verb as shout. Like you can shout or you can schweigen. I think the closest thing in English is I held my tongue, right? But imagine writing that down, having it translated later. I, 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 I held my tongue. The only way you can really get it across is an idiom. So all I'm saying is that languages don't always translate directly. And that doesn't mean a translation is wrong. It doesn't mean at all that it's wrong. It just means you're doing the best you can with the limitations of translating a language. And the original language of the New Testament is Greek. So I'd like to, um, I'd like to show, let's look at the word tempt in Greek. It's called pyrazo. I do not speak Greek. I learned this from Tim Mackey, right? I can sound it out because I'm a math nerd and I use the letters, but anyway, it can sometimes be translated as tempt, but it can also be translated as test. In fact, in some places, it is translated as test. For example, when you give somebody a test of knowledge, they use the word test. This is the same pyrazo. Let's look at this test of knowledge. In Matthew 19.3, the Pharisees came up to him, Jesus, and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? It could also be a test that is a proof of someone's ability. Again, this is that same word that they use for temptation. It's pirazzo. It says the Pharisees and Sadducees 
came to Jesus and tested him by asking them to show a sign from heaven. If you're the son of God, show me a magic trick, right? Show me something, prove it, right? You know, you could imagine somebody that talked about having a good arm in football and you could take him to the football field and give him a test. How far can you throw? Now the test for me would be, which of these objects do Americans call a football, right? I would have to have a little bit dumbed down test if I were to do it. But it can also be a test of devotion or submission to God. In the Old Testament, we read about Abraham who had a son, Isaac. God had promised Abraham that he would have many descendants, but he was old and didn't have children. Then he had Isaac. And then God told him, I want you to sacrifice Isaac to me to show that you trust me, right? Now that was written in Hebrew, the original, but when they describe that act in Greek, they again use this test, this pirazzo. So let's, uh, let's look at the verse. It says, By faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. So now let's look at these verses again. Oh, before I do that, Sorry, that's my, that's my bad, uh, Bill. Um, I also wanted to say why I think this is so important. When we talk about tempting in the U.S., in English, we think about the object of temptation, right? So if you're, imagine yourself being at a restaurant and being belt-poppingly full, and the waiter comes by and wants to give you dessert, right? He might say, can I tempt you? with our delicious cake made from seven times of chocolate from South America, right? I mean, the temptation there, we think about the object as being the temptation. And are you going to succumb to that object? But if the waiter phrased that as, may I test your resolve on your new diet by offering you a piece of delicious seven chocolate, whatever, cake, it has a different feeling to it, doesn't it, right? You can pass a test, but you, in a way, don't really feel like you passed a temptation. It's just that you didn't fail, right? So while you understand why this could be a single word, it's sometimes good, I think, to think about the temptation of Jesus as a test of Jesus. So now I can look at the introductory verses again and say, um, Then Jesus, this was what Sam read to us. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now, this 40 days and 40 nights would have been a very important thing for the Jewish audience that was for whom the book Matthew was written. Because they would have known 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness would have reminded them of the 40 years in the wilderness that God's people in the Old Testament spent wandering in the wilderness after God had taken them out of years and years of slavery and miraculously defeated Pharaoh's army and said, this land that I promise you is yours, go take it. They said, no, no, we're scared. They're kind of mean over there, right? And God said, after I do this for you, you don't trust me. And so what happened was they had to wander in the wilderness before going into the promised land for 40 years. And this 40 days and 40 nights would have been very uh, reminiscent of those 40 years. Now, this 40 years of wandering is described in the Old Testament in the book of Numbers. And then when that is over and they're about to enter the promised land, the book of Deuteronomy comes in 
And Moses, who was their leader, gives instructions on how to please God and prosper in the promised land. That's in Deuteronomy. That's important because you saw Jesus quoting the scripture back to the tempter, back to the devil. He's quoting Deuteronomy there. He's quoting the lessons learned from the 40 years in the wilderness during his 40 days of temptation. And what we're going to see is that whereas God's people failed the test over and over and over again. Jesus, we ask who is, who is Jesus? Jesus is one who passed those tests. So Jesus goes through something very similar, but he passes the test, does not fail. Let's look at the first temptation or test. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Right? So now, why wasn't Jesus eating? It doesn't say directly why he wasn't eating, but we know that the Spirit of God led him into the wilderness, and I've always presumed, also gave him the instruction that during this time, you, you are to fast, you are not to eat. Jesus passed the test the Israelites did not. He quotes the lesson from Deuteronomy 6. Remember, Moses is giving instructions for entering the promised land. Here it is. Be careful to follow every command I am giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, that is bread from heaven, which neither you nor your ancestors had known to teach you that, here it is, what he quoted, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. The problem was that the Israelites who had seen God deliver them did not trust him to feed them while they were in the wilderness. And they complained, and they did not pass the test of trusting God and obeying God. So now let's look at the second item on the test, the second temptation. It says here that the devil took him to the holy city. And I, and I want to stop just real quick to say, we believe this is not literally took him by the hand and walked him to the holy city and walked him on top of a building. This is in a vision. There are other examples in the Bible of things happening in, like this in visions. This is a vision. The devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again here, Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy, where it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massah. How many people in the room besides Al Hassler remember Massah? Because I had to look it up. <laughs> what was Massah? At Massah, the water was scarce. Water was scarce. And the people were grumbling in this way. They were saying, is God with us or not? In other words, God, you have to prove to me who you are by providing water. Right? This was the test. This was the test that, that they failed. But Jesus passed by saying, I know I am not to put God to the test. I am not to say, God, you must prove who you are to me by doing something miraculous. 
And now the final test or temptation, it says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil left him and the angels came and attended him. This is like, this is to me somehow a little bit funny because it's like, the tempter crosses the line, right? And says, Look, all you got to do, he, he moves away from logic and smooth reasoning and just says, look, I'll give you power beyond belief if you'll just fall down and worship me. This time he'd gone too far. Let's look at the quote from Deuteronomy again. It says, fear the Lord, uh, fear the Lord your God and serve him only and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods or the gods of the people around you. Because they were going to go into a land where people had different gods, and at the time they would have been praying to these little figurines or these big idols to give them rain, to give them crops. Uh, He's saying that you are to serve God alone. This is, the Israelites failed this test over and over as they wandered uh, in the wilderness, but Jesus passed it. Jesus succeeded even when God's chosen people failed. Jesus faced the enemy head on. He faced the enemy head on. He did not sin, but rather he suffered on our behalf. He faced the enemy that the people could not face on our behalf. Let's look at Hebrews uh, chapter 2, verses 17 to 18. It says, For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. And I like it with tested there, because he himself suffered when he was tested. He is able to help those who are being tested, because we definitely go through tests. We definitely go through tests. Jesus has been through similar tests. It can help and comfort us when we go through them. Now, what else can we learn from this account of the temptation of Jesus and this part of the life of Jesus? Well, we know that the devil is a proof texter. The devil is a, a person who, or that part of temptation is to take little bits of scripture out of context, little bits of scripture out of context in order to twist it to get what you want. There's a good uh, little story I heard about advice against taking little verses that you see at random to give you life advice. It's a story of a guy who says, God, I'm going to do whatever you tell me. I'm going to flip through my Bible at random, and wherever I land, I'm going to do that. So he lands on Matthew 27, 5, that says Judas went away and hanged himself. So he says, oh, God, that can't be what you meant for me to do. I'm going to have to find another verse. So he goes to another verse, and it says, Jesus, this is Luke 10, 37, it says, Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Then in his final effort to make sure God is telling him the right command, he flips again and lands on John 13, 27. And it says, so Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. (laughs) It is not the entire scripture, the entire Bible is God's revelation to us. And I think it's meant to be taken as a whole. Be wary of people. I think that the that the tempter, the adversary, Satan, which by the way, uh, Tim Mackey says Satan is a title. It's not a name. It is the adversary, the Satan. The adversary will use against you to take little, little tiny snippets of scripture and make you 
build a big case on those, and I don't think that's something we should do. The other thing that we learn is that the best lies contain a partial truth. Have you guys ever played Two Truths and a Lie? Do you know this game? I play it some at work. It's where you give two statements about yourself that are true and one that is a lie, and I'm like narcissistic enough to want to play it about me, so let's go ahead. Uh, exactly one of these things is a lie. One of the things that is the truth is I'm a Star Trek fan, so they're all about Star Trek. A, when I was a kid, I memorized all 79 episode titles of the original series in order and can repeat them back. I've forgotten some of them, but anyway. Um, now, option B is that when I was nine years old, I had a Star Trek playset with Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock action figures, if you can call that action, action figures that sat on the bridge. And C is that I once traded a piece of part of Star Trek paraphernalia to pay for professional services. So which, uh, you can think to yourself, you don't say it out loud, which do you think is the one that is the lie? Two of them are unfortunately true. But, you know, actually, to be fair, for those of you who have been coming here for a while, I've shown a picture of the playset that I had in another sermon. So it's not, I'll give you the hint, it's not B. I did have that playset. So it's down to two choices now. Uh, the episode titles and the professional services. The thing that is a lie is I did not memorize the titles of Star Trek. And while I tell you real quick, I'm going to ask the band to come out while I explain what I did with professional services. So I found in graduate school, I found a black widow or what I thought was a black widow in my apartment. And back in those days, McDonald's and Burger King, they didn't give you like toys every time. Sometimes they would give you for like only 99 cents, a glass that had like a decal from a movie on it, collect all four. Right. So I had a Star Trek three glass from Burger King that I put the corpse of the spider in because it I looked it up and it looked pretty close to me. <laughs> Laura would say would say, every spider looks close to a black widow to you. But I took it and the woman was really quirky and she's a professional entomologist and she said, you know, I normally get paid for services like this. And I'm in grad school so I'm like, shoot, okay, how much? She said, I'll take the glass. So I paid a professional entomologist with a Star Trek III glass. But the reason that I think, for people that know me well, and some of you do, the reason that I think that episode one is a good fake, a good distractor, is because it contains elements of truth about me. Those of you who know me know, A, I'm a geek. This is not the type of thing you pull out at a party and impress a woman with, you know, when I was, when I was in graduate school. It's kind of a repellent. But anyway, but... I'm kind of a geek. I am a good memorizer. I'm a really good memorizer. And it just seems like the type of thing I would do. So this is what I think is that one of the things we learn here is that the best lies contain an element of truth. You know, the example of this is the original temptation of of Eve in the garden. God had told Adam and Eve, you can eat of every tree you want, except one. Except one. That one was the test, Right? And here is the example from Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? I know it was something about trees and gardens and eating fruit, right? I mean, it contained a little nugget of truth. And I think that's the thing that we learned that when we were tempted, it's not obvious. You know, like, would you like to kill this person? I mean, it is something very subtle 
that contains elements of truth. And that's how we are tempted today. And we must be in prayer to avoid being fooled by these things that sound good and have a little element of truth in them. We do learn one additional thing, and that is we can trust Jesus because he has been through it. Hebrews 4 verses 4 verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Jesus has been through this, understands it, empathizes with us because he understands I have always believed that this tempted in every way but did not sin means whatever you go through and your struggle is, Jesus was tempted with that to the amount, um, to the extent that he did not sin. You know, when you give in to, to addictions or temptations, they become stronger. I don't think they became stronger for him because he never gave in. But I do believe he understands this temptation. The other good news about temptation is that in 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us that we are not doomed to failure. And this is something kind of interesting that happened. I added this verse yesterday as I was practicing. It says, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Um, I was a little nervous because I don't speak... uh, I don't speak Greek, and so I was a little bit trusting this Tim Mackey that all these words mean the same thing. And for a crazy reason, I used the NIV this time, and I normally use a different one. And when I looked at the footnotes, it said, by the way, this word temptation can be written is also test. It also means test. So no testing has overcome you except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tested beyond what you can bear. But when you are tested... He will provide a way out so that you can endure it. And now a little note that I have to the people who have already decided to follow Jesus. The test is of your devotion to God, right? The test is not, will you eat the cake? Yes, the cake, I mean, the cake is the thing, but the test is, will you maintain the devotion to God? And, in the restaurant situation, maybe that cake brings you momentary pleasure. And sometimes, you know, we can be in a testing situation that's difficult. And it doesn't mean that the way out is going to be difficulty-free, right? It doesn't mean that the problems associated with the test go away. It means that God will provide you a way to endure and maintain your devotion to him. This is what was so unique about this message to me is that the test is a test of your devotion to God. It's not a test of do you eat the bread. It's a test of whether you can maintain your devotion. And that the way out that is being described here is a way to maintain your devotion to God, even if it means that life on earth gets worse for a time. Huge lesson of what I think we can take from it. So we talked a bit about how Jesus passed the test that people, that his holy, that his chosen people failed. We talked about how the devil tests us, how we are tested, and that the point of the test is to remain faithful to God. That's why we gather in community to encourage each other in this way. When we're going through testing to maintain faithfulness to God, and I will say also we learned that Jesus is the type of king that puts himself between 
the enemy and his people. Jesus faced the tempter head on and passed. And this is why when he died for us, he was the perfect sacrifice because he never failed. In the Old Testament, it's clear when an animal was used as a sacrifice, it had to be a perfect animal. It can't be the one that's like messed up that you don't want anyway, right? It had to be a perfect animal to where it was actually a sacrifice. And Jesus was the perfect sacrifice because he lived a life sin-free after experiencing the greatest direct temptation from the tempter that anyone would ever experience. His sacrifice for us is worth it. If you have not taken that first step in faith, where you tell Jesus that you realize you do things that are wrong, that are called sin, and that you put your faith in him to save you, I'm happy to talk to you. Al is happy to talk to you afterwards. And the prayer team will be up and can talk to you about that. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the king that faces the enemy head on and puts himself between the enemy and his people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the king that you are. We thank you that you so many years ago faced this testing and passed it. We thank you that you're with us when we face testing and we pray that we could rely on you and we pray that you'll help us through our interactions with each other and through our devo- and through our prayers to you and our reading of your word, your whole word. We pray that we will pass the tests that come our way. In Jesus' name, amen.